We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. There are three primary groupings of the Christian tradition in the world today. The Roman Catholic tradition, the Orthodox tradition, and the Protestant tradition. Now, within Orthodoxy, there are Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox and the Orthodox Church of Antioch and the Arminian and Martoma and Coptic. And that's just kind of a few of the churches within the Orthodox tradition. And then in the Protestant tradition, we know there are tons and tons, right? There's Baptist and all kinds of different Baptists and there's Presbyterians and all kinds of different Presbyterians and Methodists and, and Church of God and just go right on down the line. Now, to say that Christianity is diverse is quite an understatement, right? We, we know even in, a, even in a community like ours, it's very homogenous. I mean, as far as communities go, you just drive down any road, right? And you can see the diversity of Christianity even in this particular community. Now, we've got to admit that an honest question that confronts us as we look at all of the diversity of the Protestant tradition, the Roman Catholic tradition. It has lots of diversity in it, too, and the Orthodox tradition. An honest question that many people ask is this. How can Christians have any confidence in the truth when they can't even agree on the truth? Now, that, that's a question that those of us who are committed to Christianity must admit is a necessary and genuine question. The vast majority of these different kind of Christian traditions all would say that Scripture has a unique role of authority, that it is a sacred deposit of revelation from God. And yet, frequently, these different traditions will come to the very same passage of Scripture, and one sees A, and another sees B. So like I said, how can Christians have any confidence in truth when the various Christian traditions can't even agree upon the truth. Now, apparently this argument is not new. Look at the passage that Emily read to us from Galatians chapter 1. She, she read Galatians chapter 1 verses 1 to 9. And here we find that Paul, 2,000 years ago, is dealing with this very question. Look what he says in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, this was written 15 to 25 years after the resurrection of Christ. I mean, this was very close to the originating event. And already we see that, what does he say? So quickly People are debating what Jesus meant. Now, if you're a Christian, the stakes are extremely high because the whole thrust of Paul's argument, look what he says. He says there's only one gospel, verse 8, and even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed, anathema. Let him be cut off. From God. Holy cow. 
That's about as high as you can get, isn't it? As far as the stakes. And here they were within a generation, the same generation. People who were there, who listened to Jesus in person are still living. And already they are debating the essence, the central core of Christianity. And here we are 2,000 years later and countless cultural differences removed. How are we going to have any better luck at coming to agreement? Now, in the first half of the 17th century, jumping forward, okay, the French philosopher René Descartes developed the primary solution that the Western world uses for facing competing claims in coming up with which of these claims is reliable truth. What he did was he said that when there are competing claims, the fastest, surest way to what he called indubitable truth, truth without any mixture of doubt, is by the clear Cold, objective light of reason. Rid yourself of all preconceived ideas and like a scientist, this is Descartes, be objective and use rigorous, clear reason. Now, how does this play out in the Christian world today? Well, the story is long and complex, but let me give you one personal example of how you and I are children of Descartes. When I was in seminary, That's where ministers go to get their theological education. One of the classes I had to take was called hermeneutics. In most seminaries, hermeneutics means rules for interpreting the Bible so you can be absolutely certain what it means. So I was taught this kind of method. This method that would enable me to be objective and to read the Bible so I could really know What Paul really meant. And it kind of, in a nutshell, goes like this. You immerse yourself in the historical context. This part that Emily read to us was Paul writing to the Galatians. So I study archaeological evidence. I study historical texts, sociological texts. I immerse myself in the history of that time period and what life was like in the region of Galatia. And I also immerse myself in the various types of literature and scripture. And I immerse myself in the languages of Scripture so that I can read it in its original language, in its original context, on and on. And then once I take all of these various pieces of data, the history, the sociology, the literary, the grammatical, the contextual, all of this stuff, and I put them all together, then I should be able to say, this is what Paul meant. So, after several years of being immersed in this method of reading the Bible, learning the languages, the history, the literature, all of this kind of stuff. I was told that I have a master of divinity. I've mastered the body of knowledge called divinity, and I can go out into the world as this 23-year-old or whatever I was and know it all, okay? Now, here's what happened. I get out of seminary, a master of divinity, and I start having conversations with other masters, okay? Um, my, my assembly of God friend down the road or my, my Catholic priest friend or whatever. And we look at the same passage of Scripture and guess what? We have different ideas of what it means. So you know what that means? Well, it's very clear, isn't it? 
All you've got to do is be smart enough to use the right method to work it right and to work it hard and you'll get the truth. So when it comes down to you just need to be smart enough and use the right method, the implications are clear, right? Every other tradition but your own is either not smart enough or they're prejudiced against the truth. I mean, that's the only logical outcome of committing yourself to that path. To be honest, it is only since that path to knowledge has been around that we've had the explosion of different denominations. What does that say? I mean, there, there, there's a huge elephant in the room at this point. I remember sitting in hermeneutics right beside my brother because he was a master of divinity and training like me. And we're sitting there and we're sitting in the same class and we're given the same passage. And we both learned Hebrew and Greek and all this stuff. And we're both looking at the same thing and knowing distinctly it's not just the assembly of God or the Presbyterian or the Methodist. or the, It's my brother sitting next to me that's getting something different out of this than I am. Paul offered a different solution. It's it's a different path for gaining confidence in the truth. It's right in what Emily read to us. Now, it's most explicit in verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Now, remember the question I began tonight with. How can we have confidence in truth? How can we tell the difference between genuine Christianity and somebody's opinion? He gives this as the answer, and it's all packed into one verb. The verb receive. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one, not that you get out of Scripture on your own, right? Do you see this is absolutely contrary to the image of Descartes sitting in his room by himself, applying the clear, cold light of reason, right? He's saying if it's contrary not to what you get out of the text by yourself, by your reason, by your historical, contextual, literary, grammatical analysis of the text. He says if it's contrary not to that, but to what? To what you have received. Then... He's a curse. So let me tell a story, a true story that will help us get at the heart of what Paul is saying. Sometime between 431 A.D. So this was like before anybody in this room was born a long time ago. Sometime between 431 A.D. and 450 A.D. There was this obscure little Christian monk by the name of Vincent. And he apparently, we don't know a lot about him, but he lived this very active kind of man of the world traveling life. And he was all over the place. And all of the sudden, he takes a break from his travels. And he retreats to this little monastery off the southern coast of France on the island of Lorraine, not far from Cannes where, you know, the film festival and all that is. There's a little island near there. He gets to this monastery and he writes a book and we've still got, it's amazing. We've still got a copy of this book today. I was just reading it this afternoon and he he named the book a combinatory. And in this book, he tells the story of traveling the known Christian world and asking the same question in every different culture he came to. And the question he was asking is the same question we're asking tonight. He asked, if Christians understand parts of Scripture in different ways, who's to decide 
which interpretation is correct. And his answer is amazing. 1,500 years ago, he said he was astonished that virtually every person he asked, every believer, had the same answer. Here's a quote from Vincent. He said, I have always and in almost every instance received an answer to this effect, that whether I or anyone else should wish to detect the frauds and avoid the snares of heretics and to continue sound and complete in the faith, we must, the Lord helping, fortify our own belief in two ways. First, by the authority of Scripture, and then by the tradition of the church. Two parts to his answer. Scripture plus tradition. Now, by tradition, Vincent means, let let me read from his own words, and this is a very famous line of Vincent's. That faith which has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. Now, by everywhere, he means the faith that is universal. It's cross-cultural. So when you come to a particular interpretation of Scripture, you should ask, is this shared by various cultural expressions of Christianity, or is this isolated to one little cultural group? Now, by always, he means antiquity. Is this claim something new, or has it always been? Is this reading of Scripture always been around? Now, he's saying this, In the 5th century, okay? Has it been around since the apostles? He was only 10 generations removed from Paul. He knew the guy who knew the guy who knew the guy who knew the guy. 10 steps back to Paul, okay? And then by, he says, the faith that has been believed everywhere, always and by all. By the word all, he means consent. What he means is, is this an interpretation that has been confirmed by a fair an ordered consenting process of both clergy and laity. In other words, it wasn't coerced. It wasn't manipulated. This is exactly the sort of thing that Paul is getting at when he says in Galatians 1.9, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, to the one that has been around, to the one that everybody got, to the one that was everywhere, always, and by all believed. There's a tradition In other words, there's scripture and then there's this received tradition that forms a core. And the historical record shows it. And we call this the orthodox faith. The faith that is consistent, that crosses cultures and crosses generations. This is orthodox faith. Where am I going with all of this? Tonight is the first message in a series of messages on the basic defining beliefs of this church. They're listed in the back of your worship guide. Orthodox faith and liturgy, reformed worldview, evangelical doctrine, charismatic practice. We're going to walk through each of these over the next several weeks. Tonight, I'm trying to open up for us a very long and broad view of the Christian faith. I'm trying to help us as a church come to grips with orthodox faith. So when we say that we're a church of orthodox faith, we're not using the word orthodox as in a denomination like Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox. We, instead, we're using it in the sense of that central, stable part of Christianity that has been believed 
and consented to and handed down through culture after culture after culture by Christians of all times in all place. So what is it? What is the stable central core belief that you and I can rest secure in because of its universality, its antiquity, and its ubiquity? In short, little history here, it's contained in seven ecumenical councils. Before the church split from Roman Catholic to Eastern Orthodox, and then Catholics split into Catholics and Protestants, before there was ever any splitting going on, there were these meetings. The first one occurred in the year 325 AD in the city of Nicaea. The second one was 381 in Constantinople. The third one was 431 in Ephesus. And then there was one uh, 20 years later in Chalcedon. And then 100 years later in Constantinople. And then another one in Constantinople. And the last one was again in Nicaea in 787. Now, here's why I'm telling you all of this. These seven councils, their outcomes, what they said, Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, the Orthodox Church of Antioch, Roman Catholic, Protestant, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, all of the Christian churches agree on those seven councils. That's why they're called the ecumenical councils. This is what happened. In the first 800 years of Christianity, Various teachings would come up and people would say, that doesn't sound right. Or people would say, I like that. And other people would disagree. And leaders of the church from the whole known world would come together at these various times. And they would debate. And they would come out of these meetings. And and they wouldn't demand that everybody believed. But when they left these meetings, the whole church all over the world said, you're right. Now, there were lots of other councils, but only these seven are agreed upon by the whole church all over the world. These seven councils produce three creeds. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed came out of that first meeting. The, the creed we're going to quote and confess tonight, it came out of the Council of Nicaea. And then the third one is the Athanasian Creed. The reason we use these creeds in our churches is because Scripture alone is not enough. Because you know what scripture alone gets you? Anybody's opinion. All right, that, that's what Descartes said. All you need is one text and the clear light of reason. And it's exploded into thousands of denominations. But in the fifth century, the church was saying, no, we need to not only have scripture. It is the highest authority, but God has given us something else. He's given us the tracks of his work throughout history. And we call that tradition. Let me show you what I mean. John chapter 14, the passage that Houston read to us. Look what it says down in verse 26. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. One of the gospel writers said it would be impossible To put into writing all of the words that Jesus ever said. So when Jesus is saying here, I'm going to give you the gift of the spirit. Now, we know the spirit does lots of things. By the power of the spirit, people are healed. By the power of the spirit, people are converted and convicted and saved. But here is what Jesus calls one of the primary jobs of the Holy Spirit. It is to cause us to remember correctly. That's the spirit's job. You know what the tradition of the church is? It is the record of the right remembrance 
provoked by the Holy Spirit. When we look back at the church over 2,000 years of history, the Holy Spirit in a mysterious and patient way that only God can orchestrate has weeded out the junk and left the truth. And so when we look back at history, we are looking back at the record of what the spirit has done in the church. This is what Vincent was saying in the fifth century. He said, when two people look at scripture and they disagree, how do we figure it out? And he said, all of the church leaders I've ever talked to and all the laity I've ever talked to, they've all said the same thing. They said, when we disagree on scripture, we look to church tradition because we believe God kept his promise. We believe that the Holy Spirit has indeed given the church a deposit of memory. And that if in his presence we open ourselves up to the tradition, we will hear correctly. The way you discover what the spiritual tradition of the church is, what the, the great tradition is what the Eastern Orthodox call it. The way you discover what the tradition is that we can trust in, you look to see what has been believed by everyone always And everywhere you look at what has really proved the test of cultural transitions of intergenerational and has been agreed upon without coercion. Now, let me kind of wrap all of this up and try to pull it together with a few final observations. When we as a church really become gripped by the nature of orthodox faith. I think it should produce a couple of things. Number one, a sense of awe. A sense of awe at the incredible work of the Holy Spirit. This passage in John, that the Holy Spirit will teach us everything and cause us to remember what the church in the fourth century figured out was true and was not true. And the church in the third century and the church in the second century. And, you know, we sang a song tonight from the 13th century. We sang a song tonight that Francis of Assisi wrote, all creatures of our God and King. You know why it's still around? Because the Holy Spirit has preserved it. In other words, we have this sense of awe that the Holy Spirit has let us forget the junk And remember the truth. Classic Christianity has survived 20 centuries. The covenant of God with his people is not threatened by our failures, our dysfunction, our denominations going awire, our heresies, our apostasy, our confusion. Jesus promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And he's kept his promise. Do you know what price God paid to create the community of the church? He is not going to let the price he paid slip by the wayside. At such a great cost, he birthed the church. The church will be guided by the Holy Spirit. The church of God has been sustained for 20 centuries through wars and plagues. God has protected it and guided it. This is a promise that God has been faithful to fulfill. And so when we gather and we sing these songs, that opening prayer that Robert prayed for us tonight, that's from the Orthodox Church of Syria. This, when we gather and we pray these prayers from the church all around the world, we are in awe at what the Holy Spirit has done. The second thing that the Orthodox view of faith teaches us is this, humility. 
humility. For us to be a church of orthodox faith is to be a church of humility. You see, because it says to me, my particular slice of the tradition is not all there is. That, 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 that there's some things we've got wrong and history is going to prove us wrong. But there's also a deep certainty that I can trust in. It it gives me the humility to reach out and to recognize my brother in the Eastern Orthodox Church, in the Russian Orthodox Church, in the Roman Catholic Church, in the Episcopal and the Baptist and the Presbyterian and the Methodist and the Coptic and the Martoma and the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And, And see, the Orthodox faith gives me a way of seeing the consistent core. We're a truly inclusive Church in this sense, in the sense that we are inclusive of our parents and our grandparents and our great grandparents. The problem with inclusiveness in America today is that it's generationally arrogant and it's only inclusive for the modern worldview. But it's not at all inclusive of the old worldview because we're better than them. It's kind of what we call temporal chauvinism. Anything new is better than anything old. But this kind of orthodox faith, it it drives me to my knees in humility. It recognizes that the most representative voices that best reflect the consenting mind of the people of God are available to us. And it causes, calls me to listen with humility. The third thing. When we as a church embrace an orthodox faith that gives us confidence. This short trip that we've had tonight through 2,000 years of history should give us a sense of confidence in the ability of the Holy Spirit to protect and preserve the truth. To lead us as a church into the right remembrance as long as we have the tools of Scripture and tradition. In other words, we can really believe what Jill's psalm declared. You remember what Jill read to us? That our security rests in God's consistency. He hasn't changed. What he revealed about himself to the earliest believers has not changed. And there's kind of a historical revisionism around today that says whatever new and improved reading you can get out of Scripture is better than the stuff that's been around forever. God hasn't changed. Listen again to the security we get from God's consistency in the psalm. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 28. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. But you will remain. God is more firm than this world. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. See it? Security because of God's consistency and their offspring will be established before you. Our confidence is in knowing the truth. Look, this is not some Pollyanna optimism. This is a doctrine grounded in the reliableness of God to accomplish his purpose. One last 
thing that an orthodox faith gives us. The orthodox faith gives us security. The security of boundaries. Right? I mean, every parent knows that no boundaries is not a secure thing. And we're living at the end of a brutal experiment that has been played in America that says you can become a healthy society by doing away with the old boundaries. We have the security of the correcting work of the Holy Spirit over a wide range of cultures and times. The orthodox faith marks boundaries that have been established for centuries. If we're trying to figure out human sexuality, do you understand how arrogant it is to say that modern people know better? What what does that mean? That means that I have a built-in chauvinism that says new and improved is better than old and proven. The chief prejudice of the Enlightenment is the prejudice against prejudice. This is what Descartes did. He sat in his little room in front of his fireplace. And he said the way to know truth is to get rid of all tradition, all prejudice, and to approach something with objectivity. And the opposite of objectivity is prejudice. Tradition is prejudice. Get rid of all prejudice if you want to know truth. But do you see what the Orthodox faith does? It challenges our modern worldview. It challenges us down to the core. Over and over, Scripture says, listen to your fathers. You can't read through Proverbs without being impacted time and time and again. Listen to your fathers. Listen to your father. I I wish we had time tonight to look at all of these passages. Moses, in this very famous part of Deuteronomy, has something called the Song of Moses. And in it, he says, your security is in remembering what you have received from your forefathers. That's what we're getting at here. We're saying, I'm not saying that your daddy can't be wrong. I'm saying that Time and culture weeds out the the chaff. I'm saying that we've got to be. We've got to rise up and recognize. That we're not the smartest kids on the block. That there's been intelligent, godly people around for a long time. These boundaries give us a freedom that we all long for. These boundaries, they deliver us from obsessive spiritual fadism. Jumping on the latest, greatest, newest idea that comes to town. I I love the way Vincent of Larens puts this. Way back in the 5th century. Let Let me just read this. He said, he is a true and genuine Christian who loves the truth of God, who loves the church of God, who loves the body of Christ, who esteems the received Christian faith Above the received Christian faith, right? That's Galatians 1, 9. The tradition that has come down that, that helps us understand the Bible. Who esteems it above everything, above the authority, above the regard, above the genius, above the eloquence, above the philosophy, above every man whatsoever. Who sets light by all of these and continuing steadfast and established in the faith, resolves that he will believe that. And only that which he is sure the church has held universally and from ancient time. But that whatsoever new and unheard of doctrine he shall find to have been furtively introduced by someone or another. 
besides that of all or contrary to that of all the saints, he will understand that it does not pertain to the truth. Minson is saying, he's saying, listen, if you think that you sitting in your room reading the Bible can come up with a truth that is trustworthy. If you don't check it against what the church has always said. Then you're a fool. You're a fool. Let me bring it all to a conclusion in the words of Thomas Oden, a great Methodist theologian. He says, our commitment to orthodoxy is not a nostalgia trip. It's not a religious form of antiquing. It rejects sentimentalism. It is grounded in a much larger tradition than modern political conservatism. It towers above the strictures of Protestant fundamentalism. It stands in sharp contrast to all modern movements. It is not an innovative idea of religion. Indeed, it rejects the cult of newness. Resisting idolatry within any particular worldview, orthodoxy reaches beyond relativistic multiculturalism to embrace a more profound multiculturalism that lives out of God's revelation. Tonight, we've prayed a prayer written by a Syrian Christian centuries ago. We've sung a song written by Francis in the 13th. Do you see how multicultural, do you see how inclusive, how tolerant, how diverse what we're doing really is? In Paul's letter to the Galatians, in Jesus' words in the Gospel of John, and in the psalmist's beautiful poetry, we are reminded of this stubborn fact, that a single, cohesive, deposit of faith, formed and shaped by the Spirit, and confirmed by generations of Christians, has persisted for two millennia. It's been translated into countless languages. The Spirit of God has enabled a consistent core interpretation of Christianity to remain throughout all the changes of history. In this orthodox faith lies our common ground with Christians all over the world. That's why every week we confess together the creed, either the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. Because we don't trust ourselves in this moment and this time. And because scripture is the highest authority. But tradition helps us to read it correctly. Let's pray.